We've been working on an in-depth, bespoke design podcast series for a while now, but then the world turned upside down with a pandemic, which shall not be named. Hint, it rhymes with schmoronavirus. We thought to ourselves, selves, couldn't we all use a little design distraction right now sooner rather than later? So we decided to condense and fast track our podcast for you into pre-season minisodes. We're leaning into quarantine lifestyle and binge watching and binge reading some of our favorite design shows, documentaries, books, and articles, and then we're gossiping about them right here. Don't worry, our bigger podcast is still in the works, but in the meantime, consider this a taste of things to come. Think of it as a podcast amuse-bouche. I'm Maeve Parker, and I'm joined by Charlene Williams. We are designers, work wives, business besties, and this is Design Design Gossip. Gossip, a podcast for the creatively curious. Today, we are gossiping about the documentary Sign Painters. It's pretty much what it sounds like, a movie about craftspeople who paint signs. So pop some popcorn and get ready to nerd out with us about lettering. So we watched the film Sign Painters, which is a documentary from 2013, directed by Sam Macon and Faith Levine. And it's about sign painters, hand-painted signs, contrast the traditional craft of sign painting with newer sign technology that's a little cheaper, like printed vinyl signs. And we picked this documentary. We were drawn to this one because it was a a little bit less highbrow and more of like a working class craft. Plus, we both are lettering nerds, so that was definitely a draw. However, we'll get into this. It is super white and super male, and that's definitely going to come up, but that's an elephant in the room up front to note. True, true. So, Charlene, in your life, are there any hand-painted signs that have left an impression on you that you're really fond of? Well, actually, the condo building that is also over 100 years old, like the one that I live in, very similar building, but they have their name, the historical name of their building in gold foil above their door. And I have always secretly coveted that sign. I just love it. I can't get enough of that, especially gold leafing and lettering. I'm also a sucker for ghost signs, so the sides of buildings when it's just faded. Anybody who knows me knows I'm an absolute geek for historic photos. I can't get enough of looking at like, okay, that's what that street looks like now, and that's what it was back then. So those little signifiers of what industry used to be there or company, I I just love it. Yeah, I love that those ghost signs that they get more beautiful with age and also that the signs themselves often outlive whatever they were assigned for. Are there any projects growing up that you were part of in your hometown that were sign painting projects? I wish there were no, sadly. I have a sense that you have a story, though. Yes, that was a big thing. Like, even in, we have a huge ski jump tournament that they would ask the local schools, their high school art departments, to do them. I've been out of there since 1997, and officially some of the last signs that I was part of were taken down in the last you know, just maybe two years. So that gives you an idea of how long those signs lasted. But either decorating, they were, it looked like basketball players around the basketball court of the elementary school, our Mountaineer mascot at the football field. As you can see, a lot of sports stuff, which I know nothing about, (laughs) but I know how to paint. So yeah, it's a trip going back and seeing those. 
After watching this documentary, we drove up to the grocery store and I was trying to look and see like, I'm going to be a detective. I'm going to see how many hand-painted signs I can spot. And I was so sad. I didn't see any on this trip between my house and the grocery store. It was all plastic signs and light-up signs and vinyl signs. And it just made me realize all these other signs that are ubiquitous now, they're, they really just feel like noise. I don't even notice them. And I was wondering, where are these hand-painted signs now? I, I have a theory. I don't know. I have to research this. I feel like they're mostly in hip cities where it's like a revival and it's cool to have hand-painted signs again. And then in rural areas where they're still there. When you live somewhere in between, it feels like they've just completely disappeared, which is really sad. Oh, totally. My drive through Wisconsin on the way home to Michigan, lots of hand-painted signs. Lots of controversial standpoints, too, <laughs> that are expressed on those signs. But yes. Mm, okay. I think you're right. Like the cities they list are, there's a couple smaller exceptions, but you've got like Austin, Texas, San Francisco, Minneapolis, these a little bit more hipster kind of cities. I also think see a lot of uh, restaurants now. These chef-owned smaller restaurants, at least in Minneapolis, that use hand-painted signs and murals. And I think of restaurants, too, being so into chalkboards. It's a little bit post-peak now, but when this documentary was made, it was we were at peak chalkboard. <laughs> that was so prevalent when this was happening. I thought that was a little bit of a miss of this documentary, that they, they missed out on calling out all the ways that signs were evolving. It did seem like they were focusing more on the true old craft than looking forward or how this is changing now. It was more about the old garden, what they think of their craft in this new world setting. So I like that in the intro, they flash through and you got to see like a t like one right after the other, a bunch of different samples of what you're about to see and the painters um, actually at work. And give, it gave you a little preview of what's to come. I also love that they have their hand-lettered titles for each one, which sort of shows off the lettering. By the end of it, I was left thinking, where are the women and any people of color? Because this was an old white boys club that stood out for sure. <laughs> Oh, so much. Let's unpack that right now. This was just so white. And the the documentary, I think what struck me the most was it didn't seem self-aware how white it was. Mm. It didn't seem like the filmmakers like that, that it had occurred to them. And I think it could have been such a fuller story if they had asked or explored why is everyone white in this documentary? And why do only white people get this work? And why do only men get this work? Like, that's part of the story, too. And they just completely missed that. One side theory I have is that minority business owners have less access to capital than white business owners. So if the white-owned businesses are able to access more money to invest in their business, including things like signs, maybe they are likely to be staying within their own network to hire out that work. And that network is more likely to be white, where the minority business owners who might be more likely to hire a minority sign painter have less access to capital to begin with to commission a sign. So it's like an endless loop. I'm sure there's a lot of other factors involved, but this is just one theory that I had top of mind. True. I know. 
there's there's one scene where one of the sign painters now teaches a class and the class was more diverse. But I'm I wish he would have talked about if that's part of his motive is passing down this knowledge Mm -hmm. to different communities or they already have a different style. So I'm about telling them about the historic stuff, just referencing it some way would have been nice. It felt like they made a decision to focus on a lot of white guys. Like they didn't even need to do that many. It felt like it felt like a hundred white guys in this. <laughs> I'm sure it was less than that. I think it was a couple dozen, but just white guy after white guy. Yeah, to quote Phoebe Robinson's podcast, so, so many white guys. Many white guys. <laughs> <laughs> and they featured three women and they were all white women too. And what really upset me about just the few women they featured is they didn't show any of their work except one painter painting one number on a building. They didn't show any of their signs that they did. That seemed like a huge, huge miss. And anecdotally, there was this one guy who was, honestly, he was my least favorite person they interviewed. He was painting a Harley Davidson dealership and he was painting like a sexy nurse on the window. And I think the sexy nurse got more airtime than some of the women in this documentary. Oh my god, you're right. You're so right. It like zooms in on the sexy nurse butt. Like, (laughs) really? Is that necessary? Oh my god, you're so, you're so right. So as I was thinking about the not as much representation of women, I kind of started to think when we saw Colossal Signs, they actually showed them setting up for doing a huge mural on the side of a building that this work involves they're they're saying it's not just about painting the sign it's about getting all the equipment sometimes carried up flights of stairs these huge the steel platforms that they stand on and things like that a lot of rigging that goes along that i could see that that would be hard sometimes for women but why couldn't they hire a team to do that right right exactly that part of the work looked a lot more physical, like when you're actually climbing up on a building. And another thing I was thinking was, I bet you those jobs, they may not have health insurance, which is probably a deterrent to, uh, it's a deterrent to everyone, but it's not very family friendly if you're a woman and you're risking your physical safety uh, dangling from the top of a building every day without insurance. That is probably a deterrent as well. Working pregnant, dangling from (laughs) the side of a building maybe not so much and the hours looked like they showed people it looks like when they set up the supplies and the scaffolding and they're up on a ladder it looks like they're trying to get the most out of the setup and they're working until dark working a long day just like trying to knock it out so that's not very conducive to family life either i would i would guess i did get a kick out of some of these old white guys quotes from the beginning like a guy said on his tombstone it should say he died for greater opacity and the idea of you really know you're painting signs for other sign painters and isn't that true with i I think of that as design in design also like putting little details that i'm like with with the average person that's buying this little kid's backpack really care about this tiny little detail but i'm like Other designers are going to see that and they're going to be like, that was cool. (laughs) One thing I found interesting was as they were talking about the start of the sign painting era was in the 1950s. And it's interesting that it sounds like the 
creative, let's say you're a Coca-Cola of the world or whatever, was totally in the hands of the sign painter. It's not like there was a larger marketing strategy and advertising company that goes down and says, okay, you need to show this bottle and this bottle needs to be surrounded by snowflakes or, you know, whatever. It was totally in the hands of the sign painter to come up with what the, what we call branding now was for that that company, that product or whatever. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And I think that is why a lot of those older signs do feel so special because they had that freedom. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the, the, <laughs> the old guy, Keith Netch? Kind of the first older guy with the big rectangle or the big square glasses. He brought up something that I thought on the one hand could be really valid. And on the other hand, I really took issue with. He was really emphatic about the difference between type versus lettering and what those terms mean. And it is important to distinguish that type and fonts, that is something that is systemized. That's something that's standardized for a lot of different uses versus lettering is something that is crafted personally by a human and it has more warmth to it. On the one hand, I think that's important to designate when you are trying to communicate the value of what's up, what you're bringing to a table. It's not just a font, it's more than that. But on the other hand, I can see that some people are just using the term font because it's the jargon they know. We don't want to be that designer, like, actually, it's it's lettering. Actually, it's like, don't do that just to put someone in their place and tell them that they use the wrong jargon. You get what they mean. They're just trying to say they like those letters, but it is valid to do it when trying to communicate the value of what you do. Yeah. And yeah, just calm down. If it's someone is just trying to like, you know what they're trying to say and they're not devaluing you, just let it go. Yeah. Which is partly why this movie feels like it's a paint sign movie mm-hmm. for other yeah sign painters. <laughs> you know, like again, kind of echo chamber. It was very niche There were some quotes I really liked from the movie. One of the few women they interviewed said that she thinks of her line of work as invisible. It's something that people don't think of it as something that you do. And I thought that was so true. There's so much art and design in our lives that people interact with every day that you think just appears. I don't know, like just comes from a library somewhere. And I I like that that this documentary is giving a story and a face to people who make that invisible art that's around us. Similarly, there was a, a guy in Austin that was reading a review that he got from someone and it said a retro sense he didn't have to go back to he brought with him and i was thinking about the number of times that digital fonts try to reference the past and how truly yeah just go with the hand-painted sign and the actual authenticity of it will make it feel of that era versus faking it to be of that era. I mean, that's largely my job in print and pattern to make things look, you know, vintage sometimes when they're not and that kind of thing that I, I really liked that review of him. Mm-hmm. I liked that guy in Austin a lot too. He was one of my favorites. I was so endeared when he they were in a parking lot and they went over and he had one of his signs that said please keep your dog on a leash i think and it had some weeds growing over it and he's weeding around his sign it was so sweet (laughs) yeah another thing that i thought of was they were talking about i think it was a a diner and ice cream place where the guy was saying my sign is up at the top and now there's postcards made of it and people take their photos there 
but he doesn't get any royalties from it. And I wanted to see what you thought about that. Ah, I mean, that is a reality in, I mean, that's how we work too. And one of the things that most frustrates me about our line of work is it's work for hire. You create the piece and you're done. Then it's not yours anymore. It goes out and you don't own it anymore. I can definitely empathize with how how frustrating that feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I really like his drawing attention to that, which led me to think more about in general, these people don't seem, their business practices don't seem to be moving along with the times. Like you see that one guy that he's got his office as a trailer and all of his invoices are paper invoices that are just hanging from shelves on random clipboards and stuff like that. I mean, you really have to be diligent and pursue things differently and probably charge differently if you're going to start going for after royalties and permissions and stuff like that, too. I did like all his invoices they were hanging and you could see they were beautiful invoices. They were like hand lettered invoices. Yeah. Yeah. It was really sad. A lot of the uh, painters that they interviewed said they they can't retire on what they're making as a sign painter. And they only interviewed one one painter, he was the one in San Francisco who's a younger guy who was saying he has sort of a mixed income stream where he will also design posters and I think he does some graphic design and in addition to sign painting, he has more of a diverse income stream where it seems like a lot of the other people they talked to didn't really adapt or not that they have to adapt, but I thought there would be more of that, more adjusting to the times because it's the main conflict of this documentary is that there was a vinyl printing machine invented in 1982 (laughs) like a generation ago like you've had some time to figure out how to how to adjust and it seems like it was definitely a lot of nostalgia for the times before 1982 yeah one of my favorite characters was ernie gosnell he was the one his scenes were shot in a tattoo parlor and he had a little chihuahua stuffed in his jacket through most of it oh he was a character yeah, no, I like him, but he does. He seems like he's out of sign painting now, but I don't think they really talked about what he's doing. And it led me to believe, I wonder if he does tattoos, because I could see such a crossover between the skills for sign painting and for tattoo artists. So let's just talk about the technique of sign painting a little bit. I have always been blown away by pinstripers on cars if you ever watch them because their bristles will be really long so that it's really hard to control and then they can just move in a straight line and often there's no guides or anything they're just freehanding it and then that technique where they think like you're making the flapping butterfly with your hands and then holding the paintbrush between your thumbs and gliding it along i don't know that almost looked harder to me i also loved i could just watch forever them taking out like this brush is a squirrel hairbrush. This brush is a liner. This brush is for trucks. It could have been an hour of that and I would have just laughed it up. Yes, yeah, a whole kit of just brushes. And then the guy says something like, you end up using whatever you have on you that day. So it's like, it's so precious, but then also, eh, sometimes you just wing it. I also identified so much with the story of the one guy saying his, one of his first sign projects, I think he was working with a family member and while he was painting, they handed him a popsicle and he kind of for a moment got his hands confused and ended up licking his paintbrush. Have you ever been working? And I don't know, for me, I use mugs a lot as my, to wash my paintbrush off in. Have you ever accidentally while you're drinking coffee end up drinking your paint water? 
I see your paint water and I can one up you, Charlene. I dipped my paintbrush in some whiskey this week and I still drank the whiskey. <laughs> I I learned to start using clear glasses for my water to at least try to trigger my, my brain to notice. Yeah, it's a rite of passage, though, to drink your paint water. Yeah, <laughs> true. I I thought it was an interesting point that was brought up that one of the sign painters was saying he tells his client you're going to make more money from this sign than I will and they never say exactly what they get paid but you think about the longevity of these signs he's right like he was saying most signs last 20 years especially if you're saying it's you know something as simple as the name of the company like nobody would know you were there that 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 is that's a very good point. I was really intrigued too by there was like a it, would, it was almost like the Illuminati of sign painters they were talking about how they have like a secret club of elite sign painters. You mean the letterheads? The letterheads, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they said they have a motto. I O A F S. They, they use the acronym that's short for it. I O A F S. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> It's only an effing sign. Oh, it's only it's only an effing sign. And I kind of envy that mindset that it gets back to when they, they do their sign, they get paid, the end of the day, they're done, there's no royalties. But that also allows them to be like, it's only an effing sign. I can go home at the end of the day and not lose sleep over this. It's only a sign. And sometimes as designers, we we need that. We need to not let our ego get wrapped up in what we're creating to be able to separate yourself takes a lot of restraint Mm, mm -hmm. yeah marjorie from echo park she's the one who said i have a crush on graphic design (laughs) which i love i love that she mentioned folk work and how sign painting goes back to folk work and i think of my grandmother who was swedish had uh, a lot of um hand-painted these circular signs and whatnot that I, I wish they would have touched on that, too. They mentioned Mike Stevens that that wrote that book that they that the letterheads referred to sort of as their Bible. Wow. They talk about the computer and how they really thought uh, it's just going to be this little thing that when people don't want to spend money and want just cheap, fast design, they had no, no foresight to see how big it was going to affect their industry. That also leads me to another, I guess, a criticism of it. Well, not a criticism, a missed opportunity. I would have loved to have heard from a client of a sign painter. Who are the people that are commissioning signs today and why do they value that over something cheaper? And how is that changing? That was someone I was just as interested in hearing from in this documentary than the people actually making the signs. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been nice to hear. I found an article in The Atlantic by Esther Bloom that is titled The Revival of America's Hand-Painted Sign Industry. And it said, a hand-painted sign suggests that a store has a personality that its products aren't mainstream or mass-produced. And I think that is that kind of answered some of the questions I had about who are the clients for this, explaining that this is someone who wants what they're selling to appear special and handcrafted and bespoke, not like Pepsi or whatever, not just a corporate sign, something that shows something more more considered. Another thing I liked about the documentary was that they pointed out that a sign 
its success can be pretty objective. A lot of the art, when you're working in a creative field, so much of what you do is subjective. It gets down to, does someone like it or not? Or there's not rules that you can meet and then you have met the criteria a lot of times. But with science, it's like, does it convey the information? Does it follow harmonious design principles, can you read it, then your sign is successful. And I'm kind of a little bit envious of crafts like that, that have that measurement of success. I can see what they were saying, but there was one part of the movie that one of the sign painters actually, he was saying they charged $15 an hour. This other person charged 12 and then this other, and this other person charged 10, right? And he had the examples that were done at the lower cost. And if I'm not looking with my designer hat on, I think the $10 sign communicated more clearly the information than his sign did that was more aesthetically pleasing. I think the $10 sign communicated the facts more. Some letters were a little wonky, Yes, they didn't have the exact flow, but from a function standpoint, I think it did a better job. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, so I'm amending my statement a little bit that <laughs> the the baseline level of success is, does it meet these criteria? But then there is some subjectivity with how good it looks at the end that I think. Yes, yeah is where you get the value. Yeah, it's maybe more easily to to split into the two camps, the function and the aesthetic. Yeah. You know, ideally you marry the two, but, you know, it does have a job to do on its own. Yes, that makes sense versus the work that we do tends to be more aesthetic, more does someone like it? And the function is a smaller part of it. It's like the ratio is flipped. Also, did you say you have or have not taken calligraphy classes or hand lettering before? Because the calligraphy class that I took, um, it was interesting, the sign painting class where they're just doing an entire board of like vertical lines and then of loops and then of angled lines. Like that was totally my experience too, that that's interesting how hand lettering on the small scale, like calligraphy versus sign painting are so similar too. One of the descriptions when they were talking about font and type versus lettering, someone described lettering as having warmth and individuality. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so true. Even I find myself, even if like I do window painting and sometimes I will actually have a font Mm-hmm. And then I will kind of trace it in the reverse on the window. And just the little quirks that come from tracing a font mm-hmm. just make it so much warmer mm-hmm. anyway, mm-hmm. too. Or those little those little mistakes that actually give it some character. So I totally agreed with that. Yes, absolutely. And sidebar, I love your window painting, Charlene. Oh, thanks. What's an, a window that you've painted recently? Oh, cake plus size resale, you mean? Oh, really? Tell me about that. There's a a local plus size reseller called Cake Plus Size Resale. And I absolutely adore this shop. And she has Kat Palavoda is the owner of the store. And she has a great sense of taking secondhand clothes that are really curated. And thankfully, she loves a lot of print and pattern, Mm -hmm. as do I. And she just creates a, a wonderful community in Minneapolis. 
So I went into her store and decided after one day visiting and I was like, hmm, she's got these huge windows that are empty right now. So I thought I'm going to pitch her. And I'm going to charge for it, too, even though this isn't something that I do on a daily basis. And she went for it. So I, my original design, I did all sorts of positive body positive messaging with a mix of print and pattern that expressed the feeling of the store. And I've done it two years in a row now. Charlene, that is the documentary I want to watch. I want to see you painting letters backwards. I want to see all your brushes. I want to see the pitch process. I've seen the end results. They're gorgeous. Yeah, I want the Charlene documentary. I think my favorite quote from the show kind of gets back to what you're doing, what you were, what we were just talking about. One of the designers or one of the sign painters said, every human being has the capability of altering their environment for the better with their bare hands. And I think that's that's a really good takeaway. And that's something you're already doing. Oh, thank you. So overall, how do we feel about this documentary? Do we want to tell people to go see it? Hmm. I would say I have a respect for the craft already. An even deeper respect after watching the movie. Hmm. Do you have to watch the movie? No. Maybe just start noticing and appreciating the signs that you interact with on a daily basis. I agree. And I would recommend the sign painters Instagram just to look at signs, which is really the main thing I wanted from this movie. Yeah, so true. Oh, well, it was worthwhile for us. I know it's unfair to say I wish this documentary was something it's not was something different. But I would want to see more like broaden out the types of signs that are included, show how people are applying this craft in other ways, how they have responded since 1982, and show more people, more diverse people doing it and examine why only a certain types of people are prominent in this industry. I think that would make it a lot more relevant for today. So maybe they'll do a follow-up one day. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. Me too. And this wraps up our quarantine recapping, binge watching. Hopefully we'll all be able to go outside and life will start returning to something that resembles normal (laughs) soon. Yeah, this is the last episode of our preseason, sadly. But the good news is that you can expect a full real season coming that we've been working on for a while. Some highlights we're going to be talking about gender in design, craftivism, a whole lot of shop talk, of course, and trends. So stay tuned for that. We're going to be back soon with our with our full season one. Oh, and in the meantime, we a segment that we're considering adding to our official season is ask a designer. So do you have questions to ask a designer? For example, should you do an accent wall? Yay or nay? Or Charlene, what's something you get asked a lot? Let's be real. Everybody wants to know how much to ask to get paid. Or how do you get paid when someone doesn't pay you? Ask us shop questions. Ask us design questions. We'll answer the best we can. We'll try not to make up an answer. We'll we'll think about it and try to come up with thoughtful answers for you. So come to our website. Find our contact info there. Send us a DM. Carrier Pigeon. Telegram. Pony Express. All right. Well, this has been a really fun preseason, Charlene. I'm excited for what's next. 
I'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right, listeners, the gossip doesn't have to stop here. Spread the love, share this episode with your bestie, leave us a review on iTunes, and come mingle with us and other creatives by joining our Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram at Design Gossip, all one word. And while you're there, show us what you've been working on with hashtag Design Gossip. Check us out on Pinterest to see all the inspiration we've been gathering. And finally, you can get show notes as well as a ton of amazing resources just for you at our website, www.designgossip.club. That's designgossip.club. Thanks, listeners. I'm Maeve Parker. And I'm Charlene Williams. Okay, bye. Later, babes. Did you hang up? You hang up. No, you hang up. No, no, you hang up. No, really. No, really.